set up over here so we can stream on Facebook as well. Alright guys, just give me one more minute. I know that today's title is somewhat salacious or attention-grabbing. <laughs> I'm actually not trying to be controversial. That is the subject matter that Rabbeinu Bukhari talks about. He actually discusses suicide. And I suppose before I begin today, I should say that I'm approaching this class with a great deal of maybe sensitivity. I know that there's a lot of people who struggle with this. People struggle with relatives who committed suicide, Rahman al-Islam. Some of the people who have reached out to me, even today and over the last couple of days, have shared with me some of the challenges they're facing. People have maybe uh, suicidal thoughts or intentions. And I don't mean to be cavalier about this in any way, shape, or form. So that's, I guess, what you could say is maybe a general opening. But more specifically, as I, I get set up over here, it's extremely important for me to, to point out that this class, while it will address the very serious issue of suicide, it's not really a lecture about suicide per se. What, what I mean is that this is a, this is a specific class on on betochen, on, on shara betochen, on, on a particular work. And, and the shara betochen makes oh, a rather shocking statement. He says something that's really shocking, really surprising, and counterintuitive. And because of that, because it's, it's so shocking what he says, because it's so, it's just so counterintuitive to, to such a degree that there's no way for me not to clarify the subject itself. There's no way for me not to deal with the subject itself only because of <laughs> the, the nature of, of what he says, which, like I said, it's, it's shocking. We will touch on, on uh, many, many issues, many issues that, that affect 
people's lives today and, and the kind of decisions that the people are making, but that is not the primary focus of this class. All right, with that little, um, should we call it a disclaimer? Why am I making a disclaimer? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. It's, it's because there will be people who actually struggle with this issue, and they may be disappointed or say, you know, I, come on, like, you didn't deal with the subject fully, or even worse, somebody will say, okay, I heard all there is to say, I, I heard everything about the subject, and now I could, God forbid, make some kind of terrible decision. So we're going to talk about things, we'll touch on it. This is not a class about suicide, it's a class on the gate of trust. The ultimate mission or purpose of this class is to continue along on the path of developing and nurturing trust in Hashem. The purpose of this class is not to address the specific issue of one choosing to end their lives. Now, having said all of this, <laughs> a lot of it is going to be addressed. Anyway, let's, um, let's just get right into it. I suppose that is the, the best way to deal with the subject. And I'm, I'm going to try to uh, point out what I've, when I think something is lacking or, or issues, I'm, I, will, I will try to point it out. I want to remind everybody, I see uh, uh, Janet from Tennessee is saying hello, that if you have any questions or if there's something that you feel I didn't clarify properly, please just take a moment to share it on the live chat. I do periodically look at the screen and I will try to read the questions as they come in and respond to them. Okay. This is our, our 81st consecutive class on, on, on this particular topic, on this subject. The first one was an introduction, and this is actually the 80th episode on the Shar HaBetochen itself. And we're only in the fourth chapter. And the reason that it's taken so many presentations, so, so, many, so many classes, so many lectures, which on average are not short, <laughs> I guess average is about an hour and a half, is because this is a very, very difficult book to study. Very difficult. Not always because the subject matter is just uh, refined and, and nuanced, but because sometimes it's so nuanced that it seems utterly simplistic. And, and it makes its studying very problematic. I have had much difficulty in understanding the intent of the author. I spent, spent a lot of, a lot of toil, a lot of effort trying to figure out what Rabbeinu Bachaya the Great really meant when he penned these words. I hope to Hashem that I actually understand what he's saying and that I'm not misleading you. But I have to tell you that this particular episode is probably, if not the most difficult one, amongst the most difficult things I had to tackle. I, I literally could not understand what he was saying. 
in my quest to try and understand this. I, I reached out to a number of different people I thought might have proficiency. And, and last night I ended up speaking to a, a tremendous scholar who wrote a book on the subject, a, a highly regarded book. And I, so I, I finally called him, got a hold of this eminent, highly respected scholar yesterday. And I, I briefly introduced myself for what, I'm, what I've been trying to do. And I said, you wrote a book. Can I, can I ask you some questions? Because I don't understand what's going on here. And he said, sure. And I began to ask him the questions that I had. And I illustrated why I felt that the author was contradicting himself. And, and saying things which don't, don't seem to make sense. And he said, yeah, those are really good questions. I, I wish you a lot of luck. <laughs> I said, like, I didn't call you for a blessing. Um, can you help me? He says, yeah, not really. You know, I, don't, I don't know the answer to those questions. He says, so, you know, I, I, I use the book more of as a, a platform for inspiration. I, I didn't study it that carefully. I <laughs> they hung up on me. I'm like, what? Seriously? So, so this was really, really challenging, really challenging. And I'm going to... I'm going to share with you the material. I'm going to share with you the material. I'm going to, I'm going to read through it. And I have to tell you, like, the, the, you know, the, the modern-day books that elucidate the Shara B'tochen, to me, just don't, don't do it justice. And, and it didn't... It didn't um, I didn't find it helpful. But I think... I, I listen, do I know? I think I figured something out. I think I think I figured this out. And if I'm mistaken, Hashem should forgive me. And if I'm not, then I'm very fortunate. I'm lucky to have received the gift and and I want to share it with you. One of the questions that we have to ask and answer is why is, why is Rabbeinu B'chaya, or the Chavis Alavavis, why is he even discussing this? Like, like why is this even an issue? Why, why, is, why, why does it merit discussion? Suicide is it's an issue. There's a statement in the Talmud. It's quoted in the codes, from Rambam to Shulchan Aruch. There's much written about the severity of the subject. What does it have to do with this? So the, the simple answer to the question is that betochen is a, is a, it's a dangerous animal. What's, what, what's the danger of betochen? How could it be dangerous, right? So the danger of betochen is that we might become cavalier and blame things on God and not make the effort. This is the danger of betochen. Betochen, trust in Hashem, is an extremely important element in our avodat Hashem. But if it's misused or misapplied, it can become almost a destructive element in avodat Hashem. And that would be a terrible thing. I would like to suggest that Rabbeinu B'chaya wrote this book with 
a great deal of concern. Concern that people weren't living with Betachen, that didn't understand what Betachen is. But also, I think he was concerned that people, once discovering what Betachen asks of you, might take certain liberties, might even violate the Torah by virtue of what they learned. And in that case, Rabbeinu Bechaya has essentially handed a sharp knife to a child who cuts or harms himself. So he needs, Rabbeinu Bechaya needs to make sure that you understand what betochen is and what it isn't. What it allows you to do, what it will gift you with, namely this loss of anxiety. Who would want to get rid of that? Having a life with no worries. Being able to live with a profound sense of certainty, but at the same time, not, God forbid, to become cavalier or relaxed about the responsibilities that Hashem and His Torah places upon us. It's a big issue. You know, yesterday, as, as I was um, knocking my head against the wall, almost literally, I got an interesting WhatsApp message from a, from a colleague of mine. Not somebody I speak to very often. And he sends me a, a picture that he took from a, a book he was reading. The book is one of the Rebbe's letters, the books of letters, the Igris Kaidish. Almost 40 volumes of these letters already published. And it's a letter from the early 50s. And the letter writer is asking the Rebbe, why isn't it that the book of Shara Betochen isn't part of the curriculum? This the particular questioner wants to know why it's not part of the curriculum in the girls' high school. Such an important book. And the Rebbe's response is that because it's so difficult to teach, and because the teachers might not understand the material, the problem isn't the book, he said. The problem is the teachers. That it's not even a good idea to, to use the book. Can you imagine? <laughs> it, was, it was shocking to me that it's so easy to get it wrong that the Rebbe felt there would be so few people that would either be qualified or invest the time needed to teach this properly that he, he felt it couldn't make it part of the curriculum. And, and this colleague of mine knows that I, I'm working really hard in these classes and, and, and that one of my, my bones to pick with, with books printed and, and those somehow have given classes is that they're cavalier about it and they aren't affording him the, the, the respect he deserves and, and uh, investing the time that's necessary to understand this. And he says to me, uh, apparently you're right. I thought that was really interesting, especially because as yet yesterday I was having such a hard time, so I took that as like a, a sign from heaven, you know. Keep knocking yourself out, and with Hashem's help, we're going to get there. So, so first of all, if, if a person doesn't um, make efforts to make a living, for example, or a person doesn't make efforts to preserve his health, then he's violating, not fulfilling the Torah. Yeah, but it's all in God's hands, right? Oh, yeah, it's in God's hands. But that doesn't exonerate you. 
So the author is very, very strong. He comes on very strong in emphasizing the absolute uncompromising need for us to make every effort. But then he goes further. He, he's troubleshooting here. He says it's eminently possible that if a person makes the calculations, and says, you know, if God's in control, why can't I risk my life? Anyway, I'm going to succeed or fail based on what God wants or decides. So he would use betachen to justify taking an unnecessary risk. So Rabbeinu Bechaya's answer to that was murder. That's murder, he said. He draws a direct line between killing yourself and killing somebody else. He says if death is predestined, wasn't the other person's death already predestined? <laughs> As such, the person could say, I didn't kill him. He was going to die anyway. I killed a dead man. And since he was going to die anyway, I should be exempt. I shouldn't be accountable. It's self-understood that that's untenable. Incidentally, there was really a story like this, not based on Betochen, but based on what people might term somebody being dead anyway. The story was, and this is, you can Google this, I did many years ago. It happened in New York State. There was a, a fight in a bar, and somebody shot somebody else in the bar, a bar fight. And the person was on machines, and the doctors told the family that there was no hope. It was impossible for this person to recover. All the scans of the brain were coming with, you know, black, zero activity. So they advised the family to disconnect him from the machines, what we call pull the plug, which the family did. By the way, you don't want to do that. That's, we'll, talk, we'll touch on that today. And the person died a short while later. In the murder trial, the, the murderer argued that he didn't kill the person. He shouldn't be tried for murder. He should be tried for battery and assault. He said the family killed the person. The person was alive. They took him off the machines, and as such, they killed him. So if they took him off the machines and they killed him, they should be guilty for murder. Or at least he shouldn't be charged for murder. And in order to avoid this argument, they created a new legal term. Quote, brain dead. In other words, they said that he was legally dead. They disconnected the machines from a person who's legally dead and as such convicted the murderer. Now, that works fine for New York state law and maybe it was even the right thing to do in order to convict the murderer and murderers should be convicted. The problem is that it doesn't necessarily reflect the Torah truth of death. That is to say, whilst it doesn't exonerate the murderer, it doesn't exonerate those who hasten the person's demise either. You, you see what I'm saying? It's In halacha, there is no description of brain death. 
and this is a very complex discussion and beyond the purview, really, of what we're talking about here today. I once did give a lecture, at least more exhaustively, on the subject. But the point I'm trying to make is that one could argue, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. I was going to die anyway. So Rabbeinu Bechaya argues forcefully. He says, number one, that's no different than making an argument that you can kill somebody because they're going to die anyway. And if God was going to save them, well, God's going to save them anyway. What is interesting or like very compelling is Rabbeinu Bechaya chooses not to stop there. He doesn't stop there. You think he, you know, that's, that's pretty bad. He just said, you can't do this the same way you can't commit an act of murder based on betachen. So I trust that God ordains death. So I didn't do anything wrong. He doesn't stop there. He takes this, he takes this further. And he now begins to argue that it's worse than murder. As if murder isn't bad enough. And I was so perplexed. First of all, why does it have to be worse than murder? Murder is bad enough. Secondly, that, that sounds so counterintuitive. I don't think I've ever met somebody who intuitively said, oh yeah, yeah, no question. Murdering somebody else is terrible, but murdering yourself is definitely worse. I've never met anybody who advanced such an argument. I've never seen it anywhere in Torah before. And Rabbeinu Baha'i's proof of it was even more perplexing to me. So I just couldn't understand this. And then he goes on to forcefully argue that it's the wrong thing to do because it's violating the will of Hashem. Yeah, so is any other Avera, any other sin is also violating the will of Hashem or an act of profound rebellion. So I just, I just couldn't make heads or tails of this. Let's, let's read it inside. If you want to follow along in the Kiat edition, you can take a look on page 117. Over there, the elucidation of the Shara B'tachan says, the person who kills himself is also a murderer. He's responsible for his death. Despite the fact that it was premeditated by God that he would die, he's responsible for it. Then... The elucidator claims the author now goes a step further by saying that suicide is actually worse than murder for a number of reasons. My first question is, I don't know why he's going a step further. And he says, first, the closer the victim is to the killing, the closer the victim of the killing is to the killer, the worse the crime. Murder is murder. Is it, really, is it a bigger murder if you're related to the person that you kill? 
The act of murder is ultimately an act of treachery, the highest act of treachery against God. What difference does it make if I'm close or distant from the person? I mean, it just didn't make sense to me. In the, in the words of Rabbeinu B'chayi himself, V'chol hamumas korev el hamemis. He says, the closer, the closer relationship that will exist between the victim and the killer, yiu ha'oinish yoter ra'ui. So then, the punishment is more suitable. I mean, in different translations, harsher the punishment, it doesn't say anything about harsh. Other versions have uh, the more deserving of punishment. It doesn't really say that. It says, Ha'onesh yoter ra'ui. The ra'ui means suitable, appropriate. The punishment is more appropriate. What's the proof? Kamesha Kosov. I mean, this is like, it says it openly in a verse. On his pursuing with a sword of his brother, and in, in doing so, that this is a person who, if you will, annulled or uprooted, destroyed his own mercy. All right, so we obviously have to look at the Pasuk and, and see what the Pasuk, what the verse is saying. So I want to see if you have any questions. All right, Yaakov, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you, instead of commenting, I'm going to ask Yaakov, please, to, I'm going to read the comment also, but just spell out precisely what your question is, because it's hard to, for me to figure out what you're exactly you're asking, and so uh, I, I want to be able to respond as best possible. Okay, we have to look at the Pasuk. I mean, Rabbeinu Bechaya claims that this is not his idea, it's a verse, it's a Pasuk. There's a, a verse in the scripture which indicates exactly this. That's very, very interesting because nobody's ever heard of this, Right? The Torah talks about murder. The Torah doesn't talk about the relationship of the murderer and the victim. The Torah does talk about intent. The Torah talks about being certain that somebody intended to commit an act of murder or wanted to commit an act of murder, didn't accidentally or carelessly commit an act of murder. In secular law, we have the difference between murder and manslaughter. Some of those differences are not appropriate from a Torah perspective at all. But the level of emotion that a person did or didn't invest in an act of murder isn't mentioned anywhere in the five books of Moshe, where the mitzvahs are delineated. Not once. In fact, it's not mentioned anywhere in the code of Jewish law. And for that matter, 
Nowhere in the Talmud is there a discussion of the amount of feeling invested in the murder, be it glee or anger, frustration or delight. It, it doesn't, it's not discussed. It seems that Rabbeinu B'chaya is introducing something radical, something different, something new, and he, and he maintains it's, it's a pasuk, it's a verse. There's a verse in the scripture that says this. Okay. What's the verse? So the prophet Amos is one of the 12 minor prophets. And in the first chapter, in the first chapter, Amos talks about various nations who did harm to Israel and the punishment that will be meted out to them. And there's an interesting syntax. In Amos's prophecies, in this chapter, he speaks about various nations. He mentions three sins. Hashem says, I'm going to overlook the three sin, three transgressions. I can, I can go beyond. But the fourth, this is the devastating one. This is, this is devastating. He talks about Edom. Now, the Edomites are neighbors of the Israelites. Or at least they were. <laughs> Edom used to be situated in the southeastern border of the biblical land of Israel. Edom today is better known by most as an associated with Rome. We'll talk about that a little bit. But at any rate, this was an ancient enemy of the Jewish people. And of course, we are related. The Edomites are descended from Esau, Esau. We are descended from Jacob, from Yaakov. By the way, Amalek, the iteration of evil, the incarnation of absolute evil in our world, is also descended from Esau, Esau. So, the Pasuk, Amos chapter 1, verse 11, says, Koi Omar Hashem, this is what God says, Ashleisha Pishe Edom, on the three transgressions of the Edomites, Va'alarba, but on the fourth, Lo Yashivenu, the fourth, I am not going to, so to speak, turn aside or relent. For the pursuit of his brother by sword, with the sword. And the annulment of his own compassion and mercy. Vayitroif la'ad apoi, and his wrath, his anger, like the word yitroif means to tear, 
I guess, to, to rip or to maul physically. And his fury, his angst and anger is kept for forever. So what is this? What are we talking about over here? So Rashi says simply, when the Israelites were preparing to enter the land of Israel, they sought passage through the land of Edom. And the Edomites said, nothing to it. And they came to the border heavily armed, demonstrating that if the Israelites would so much as trespass or cross their border, there would be a full-on conflict, a war against them. And then, not only did they come out armed, but they continued to nurse that grudge and that fury and that anger. I fail to see how, <laughs> how that indicates that if the murderer is closer to the victim, it makes the murder worse. I, just, I, just, I, don't, I didn't understand it. Chased his brother by sword. So the Mitzudah's David says, Halayoch Esav Liakov. Esav is a brother to Jacob. Okay, that's, everybody knows that. Why then did they pursue them by sword at the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash? I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry, like, could somebody explain that, please? Why did Rome destroy Israel? Well, let me tell you why Rome destroyed Israel. Rome wished to dominate what they considered the civilized world. They wanted to be the mightiest empire. And the sty in their eye were the Judeans, the Jews living in the country called Judea, which tragically had become a vassal state of Rome by Jewish weakness and downright stupidity because of their own inner conflicts. Two brothers, Maccabean descents, are warring over the crown. And in order to solidify himself, one opens the door and lets the Romans get a heel in the door. And they were only too happy to get their heel in the door. Once they got the heel in the door, they forced the door open. Both of the Maccabean brothers, in the end, disappear. And an Edomite, not a Roman, but Herod is not Jewish. He becomes the king of Judea. He's not Jewish. He has no loyalty to the Jewish people. He has loyalty to Herod. So Herod is not Jewish. It basically makes Israel a vassal state of Rome. And then the Jews were very proud people. And the Romans were very brutal occupiers. And things go from bad to worse. And on a literal level, when the Romans perceived rebellion, they decided to quell the rebellion. No country put up a fight like the Judeans did. No country lasted as long against Rome. We were a tiny fighting army, a tiny army 
And the resilience and the courage, the bravery of the Jewish soldiers was so astounding that Rome had to do things unprecedented in its military history and never repeated. And when they finally did conquer Jerusalem, there was such a wrath and a fury. And yes, there were anti-Semites and hated Jews. So you come to the Roman and say, you know, this is your brother. Roman's like, what are you talking about? My brother? A familial, like a kindred relationship? It, make, it made it worse because the Romans are, 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 are from Esau. Like, this is a Torah idea which the secular world like rejects and mocks altogether. But the Torah idea that the tribes that eventually built Rome originated in Edom. There were Edomites who set sail across the Mediterranean. And not even, I'm not convinced the Romans even knew this. Or the average Roman legionnaire, a brutal killer, knew that or felt that he was in some way related. According to many Midrashic sources, it was only the, 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 the leadership, the upper crust of Roman society that actually was Edomite anyway. You know, there's an expression that, that uh, Rashi uses from our sages in his commentary on Avraham Avinu's covenant with with, with uh, Avimelech, and it says, it says, that we'll make a covenant that binds my, my grandchildren up to great-grandchildren. And Rashi says, quoting our sages, Ad kan Four generations is where there's like a paternal compassion. After four generations, it's, it's not a grandchild anymore, it's a descendant. The natural emotion isn't there. So, Parental compassion and love can last for only four generations, but sibling closeness is supposed to last 30 or 40 generations? I mean, what, what does this mean? What, what did Rebbein Abachayah see in this verse that opened his eyes and, and made him aware of this? And Mitzudah's David is very clear about this. He says we're talking about Zman, Churban, Bayit, Hasheni. The Radak says, you know, there are those who maintain that this is about Esau and Yaakov, that, that Yaakov had to run away from Esau because Esau threatened to kill him. Okay. And then there are others who maintain that this verse speaks about the Israelites upon their entrance into the land that was then called Canaan. But the right interpretation here, according to Radak, is Churban Bayetsheni. I'm like, I, I, I don't know what's going on over here. I don't understand what Rabbeinu Bahai is saying. I don't know why he's saying it. And I don't see his proof. And I also noticed that he uses the word haonesh The punishment is more suitable, more appropriate. Incidentally, in the very next sentence, he says, V'chein, and also, which some commentaries like read it as a, as a run-on, but V'chein indicates it's something else. It's, it's not impossible that it's a run-on. Misha heimit es atzmo yihia ancho gadol He says, the person who kills himself 
commit suicide, his punishment will certainly be greater, without any doubt. So when he brings his biblical proof, he says, Ha'onesh yoter ra'ui, the punishment is more suitable. But when he comes with the second verse, he says, without a doubt, the punishment will be greater. Those are two different expressions. Punishment being appropriate and a, pun- a greater punishment will be, without a doubt, meted out is two very different things. And clearly, he didn't see that in the verse in Amos. He only saw that it's more appropriate. What does that mean anyway? A punishment's appropriate. I really couldn't understand this. Right, so Yaakov is writing this, and I'm going to share it with, with everybody and try to respond. Betachen is a thought mitzvah. Okay, I'm not so sure I agree with that. We talked about much more than being thought, but actually it's an emotional mitzvah. It's an emotional mitzvah. Maybe a consciousness, but not thought. And, and we can see that from the fa- very fact that the book, Shara Betachen, Gate of Trust, is part of a larger book called Chovot Halavavot. Chovat halavavot means obligations of heart, not obligations of mind. So this is an emotional mitzvah. And we also illustrated uh, from uh, Maimer of the Altarab and the Mitlalab that, that uh, this is very much in the realm of emotion, Kabbalistically speaking, very much in the realm. So it's a, it's a, it's an, um, if thought means emotion, it's fine, but it's a consciousness slash emotion, emotion kind of mitzvah. Is it possible that Rabbeinu Baha'i is referring to a more complicated dichotomy rather than commenting at the end result of what Halacha sees as murder, giving suicide more weight. Um, it, it's, not, it's not only possible, it's not only possible, um, yeah, you're, you're adding now that you made experiential. Fine, yes, I, I agree. It's not, it's not only possible, it, it's, it's actually, it has to be. It has to be that he's not talking in terms of Halacha. It has to be that. <laughs> Because in halacha, none of this is found. And this book isn't the halacha book. It's the book that guides us and teaches us how to nurture and develop our betachin and Hashem. So I'm going to agree with that supposition. I'm, I'm leading in that direction. And um, yeah, the question, of course, is what is it? Like, how, how, what does it mean? But here's the even more shocking thing. Amos is going through the nations. He's reaming into different nations for the terrible things they did. So, for example, when he finishes talking about Edom, he talks about Bnei Amon. Similar beginning, he says, Ashloisha Pishe Bnei Amon, the three sins, three transgressions of the Ammonites. I'm going not to, to dispense punishment, but it's the fourth one that I'm not going to refrain from doing. And what does he talk about? What's the fourth one? I'll become Horus Agilod. And there, forgive me, ripping open, splitting open pregnant woman. I mean, this is like Nazis. Ripping open pregnant woman. 
And they did it. Laman Harchiv Esgvulo, not in self-defense, but to broaden their borders. Most of the Mepharshim describe this. There's this cleaving pregnant woman. I mean, it's, this is like, defies description. It's a, it's a brutality. It's, it's an act of cruelty that is literally hard to talk about. It's the cruelest slaughter one could possibly imagine. And that's juxtaposed with the Edomite who pursued the Israelite by sword, was ready to and did engage in warfare and in slaughter. But because there's a familial element, it's as bad as the Ammonites who ripped open pregnant women. Really? Like, I, I, I can relate to verse 12. I can relate to verse 13. I, I, this is, I, I understand that. I understand verse 13. I could, I could see that. I'm saying, like, you went to war. You ripped open pregnant women. Unforgivable. Yeah. Unforgivable. As one... As one uh, Holocaust survivor who I knew wrote in his memoir, Label Zisman, he writes, you know, people, he writes that he was, he refused to buy things from Germany. His wife once ordered some dishes and it was stamped made in Germany and he broke the dishes. One out of, he refused, refused to take recreation. And he, and, and he writes very, he says, people said, you know, there was, they were just following orders. And, and, and he says, I saw babies ripped, ripped apart. I saw pregnant women ripped open, following orders. Yeah, he says, that's uh, not acceptable to me. I will never forgive the German people. Unfortunately, it wasn't just the Germans. But German soldiers literally ripped babies apart, literally. Ripped open pregnant women. There are, there are sickening descriptions from many different survivors who didn't have kindred experiences, if you will. They weren't in the same place and reported the same brutality, the same unspeakable cruelty, the same mind-boggling, sickening, depraved behavior. He says, you know, these are not animals. Animals kill to eat. These are demons, monsters. So verse 13 makes sense to me. I don't, I don't even understand verse, verse 11. I don't even understand it. I certainly don't understand how verse 11 of the first chapter of Amos becomes the platform for what Abinu Baha'i is trying to convey to us. That there's a difference in murder if the murderer knew the victim or was close to the victim. And that's why the punishment is more appropriate, more suitable. There's, a, there's another verse, by the way, if you go into the second chapter, it talks about the sins of the Moabites. What's the sin of the Moabite? So 
Hashem says, I can overlook. But what's the arba? What's the fourth? For burning the bones. For burning the bones, the Pasuk says. Because they burned the bones. So why is burning the bones such an awful thing? So it's like a macabre thing. Right? You, not only they killed their victims, they mutilated their corpses. Again, it's like, it's an animalistic kind of behavior. Yeah, the Nazis, they did a very good job at that. It's, it defies description. War is a terrible thing and people get killed, but not to give dignity to a corpse. There's a member of our community who's had the privilege of serving in the IDF. And for a period of time, he had the awful responsibility during the Yom Kippur War of dealing with bodies of murdered Israeli soldiers. And he described to me how they came back. And it was, I don't, want to, I don't want to talk about it. It was so horrible. They, they, everyone was mutilated in the same fashion. And he said he had to literally take the pieces and put them back together. This is the, the Syrians. He said, every one of them. So, and, and like he said to me, you killed, you killed the boy. Did you have to mutilate him like that too? And this didn't happen in combat, it was clear. So when you, when you want to say like, a person would say, he said to me, I can never forgive the Syrians. I can never forgive them. The, the cruelty of, of mutilating corpses. I, like, those are words that are understandable. But they're, they're cousins. Wow, what? Cousins? From ancient genealogy? just doesn't seem to make any sense. So the first glimmer of light I found was when I, when I looked at the commentary of the Abarbanel. The Abarbanel has a new way of presenting these the three sins in this Pasuk. He says that the first sin was when Esau pursued Jacob, wanting to kill his own brother. Shem says, I can look away. The second sin, in the times of Moshe, when they want passage into the land of Israel and will not bother the Edomites in any way, shape, or form, they don't allow them to get through. The third sin, he says, Harishain, and he brings the Pesukim. Hashlishi the third, the Edomite participation in the destruction of the first base of Megdash. And he says this is actually a verse of Pesuk in the book of Psalms. I always thought was talking prophetically about the second base of Megdash. No, he says, took the first base of Megdash. What David HaMelech says prophetically, Zechoyer Hashem Levnei Edom. Remember, O God, the children of Edom. Es Yom Yerushalayim, day of Jerusalem. Ha'oyim Oru Oru. They said, raise it, raise it. So they 
exalted, delighted over the misfortune and suffering of the Jewish people. Hashem says these three sins, Jacob's, the pursuit of Jacob, the not allowing Israel, this is Hashem says, no problem, I could overlook that. Vahadalid, the fourth, Masha'asu Ha'edoimim, what the Edomites, and here, very interestingly, the Abarbanel adds, Shentiashvu Beromi, the Edomites who migrated and settled in Rome, Shechrivu as bias Sheni, that they destroyed the second base of English, Veshofchu Bnei Yehuda Kamayim, they poured the blood of the Judeans like water, Sevivay Sirushalayim, which is actually, there's verses about that. The first three I can overlook. You chased your own brother with a sword. You intended to kill your own brother. Even though he didn't do it. He just wanted to do it. He didn't not do it because, because he decided not to do it. He didn't do it because Jacob ran faster. He ran away. But that was his intention. He intended to kill his brother. Al-Bez, He liberated, uprooted, if you will, annulled his mercy. Al-Gimel, that's the meaning of v'yitif la'ad. That means to take prey. He participated in, he mauled Yerushalayim, they, they mauled the city, mauled the inhabitants, so to speak. But he says the end is the Shomra Avasi. They continue to hate into the fourth, the anti-Semitism, the hatred to Jewish people that, that motivated and perpetuated the atrocities of the time of the second base of Migdash and the terrible suffering of the Jewish people throughout this longest Galus, which is called Galut Adom. This is the language of the verse. The Shomre Evosay, the, the perpetual wrath Lonetzach. So, so how does it help me? I'll tell you how it helps me. <laughs> what Abarbanel essentially is doing is dividing this verse over a, a number of sins, a number of different sins. The fact that Hashem will prosecute the Romans and hold them accountable for their fourth sin doesn't mean the first three sins aren't sins. It just means their sins for which they will not be held fully accountable. Their, their sins that God will, so to speak, refrain from dispensing punishment over. But still a sin. What's, what's the sin? He chased him with a sword. That's, that's a sin. That's called attempted murder. You can get convicted for attempted murder. What's the next sin? The next sin is Shichis Rachmov. He annulled his mercy. This is a new sin. We've never heard about the sin of annulling mercy. But it's a sin. Noticed by God, although he's going to refrain from meeting out a punishment for it. In other words, when a person has compassion and he crushes it, quashes it, annuls it, 
that's an act of sin against Hashem. So this is what Ibn Abhaya was talking about. I would have to say that he might have learned the Pasuk the way the Abarbanel explains the Pasuk. Now the truth is the Abarbanel goes on to describe the, the Pasuk in different terminology. He says it's also possible that the three sins are Avodazara, idolatry, Gilearoyus, licentiousness, and Shrikas Dambim, and bloodletting. But he says the, the fourth sin was what they did, what they, the atrocities they perpetuated against the Jewish people during the actual, the actual destruction of the second Beis Hamikdash. And he says, that's with the cruelty, unmitigated cruelty, that they held back normal, natural compassion. A normal human being can't do this. And they ignored the if you will, relationship, that's really what, what the issue here is. So, so even if we follow along the, the, the second approach, what the Barbanel essentially is telling us is that the prophet considers it to be, speaking in God's name, he considers it to be sinful when a person deracinates, uproots, stamps out, suffocates, natural compassion. This is, a, this is like a, a new idea. It doesn't say it anywhere else. So I think what Abarbanella is saying, he's saying that when we speak about the concept of murder, which is a terrible sin, the worst of sins, there is also an element of sinfulness when it comes to holding back one's mercy. When it comes to doing away with the compassion that would naturally be there. And he says it's ha'oynish yoseroi, then the punishment for murder, which is universal. Punishment for murder is death by Torah law, if there's a conviction. But he says that that, that death, the pain of death is most suitable when it involved not only the act of murder, but the annulling of mercy. So it doesn't, doesn't mean that it's prosecutable. It doesn't mean that it changes the punishment. It can't change the punishment. The punishment is the punishment. But we can see that it is part of, if you will, the reason for punishment. It's, it's something that in Hashem's eyes, is considered to be sinful. So it makes the actual punishment meted out more suitable, more appropriate. The Torah tells us that when a person commits an act of murder, the murderer has to be put to death. And we're not allowed to accept any kind of bribe or payoff. Even if the victim's family says, you know, this person is worth a billion dollars and they committed an act of murder. We're poor as uh, synagogue mice. So since we're so poor and we're like synagogue mice, you know what? Let him give us all his money. We can become billionaires at least. 
and whatever. Don't kill them. Instead, lock them up. And I'm not to do that. If that murderer is convicted, he has to be killed. His money will be inherited by his heirs. And the victim's family would say, hey, you know, we lost our breadwinner, and now the murderer is dead. Whoopee-doo. What does it do for us? Maybe nothing. But it says it's not an option. Hashem says this is the way it has to be. The only thing that can atone for murder is the death of the murderer. It's the only thing that can atone for it. No amount of reparation can atone for murder. Incidentally, since we're talking about this, reparations? No. Death sentence. Every single Nazi who was proven to have killed an innocent person should have faced the gallows. Not ten Nazis, not leadership alone. Every single person who carried out an act of murder should have been killed. And the non-German Nazis, all of their willing henchmen and executioners in Poland, in Lithuania, in Estonia, in Latvia, in Ukraine, and the list goes on. Entire villages were rounded up by their neighbors under the tutelage of a single or two or three SS officers. The killing carried out by the locals. It's all documented stuff. Repatriations wasn't the answer. Justice was the answer. It wasn't until the 60s they even started to talk about justice. So many of these people who were complicit in the murder of thousands just went back to regular jobs. There's like a movie about this called the, the Labyrinth, I think it's called. It describes what was going on in Germany in the 60s. But the, point, the point is that cruelty makes the murderer that much more deserving of the justice that has to be carried out. It doesn't factually change anything. He doesn't say the punishment is greater. He says, this is a very powerful question that's being asked by uh, Aaron Wealth Management, and I want to I read it out loud, and I want to try and respond. There are, these are examples of when Hashem looked away. Does Hashem not look away when someone is terminal in agony and chooses to end their life? Uh, first of all, I can't answer that question. Only Hashem can answer that question, whether he looks away or not. I, I will demonstrate to you that, that there, there, seems to be, there seems to be a certain sense of almost reticence for us to pass judgment. Seems to be. But I don't want to say that. I don't want, I, this, is, this is not really a class about that per se. This, this class is ultimately the purpose of this, what we're studying now, was studying Rebbeinu Baha'i's work. It's not my own... Uh, Musings on, on suicide. The, person of, uh, the purpose of Rabbeinu Bechaya's mentioning all this is so that nobody uses betochen as an excuse 
for taking risks. Nobody abuses this idea of trusting in Hashem. And that will come out very, very clearly. Very clearly. I'm going to try to respond to Richard's question soon. Okay. This is the first point that Rabbeinu B'chayim makes. He says the fact that a person can take risks, which is unnatural. It's unnatural for a person to kill themselves. The fact that it's a, there's a certain unnatural element to it gives it, on some level, a more grievous nature. It makes it that much worse. And Rabbeinu B'chaya is extrapolating this then. He says, who are we closest to? Who do we naturally care more about than anybody in the world? We ourselves. We always care more about ourselves. That's human nature. A person who doesn't care about himself or herself is not well. That's unnatural. So for a person to be able to bring themselves, to kill themselves, and clearly we would be speaking about somebody who is just fine. A person to do that, they have to overcome, if you will, it takes a tremendous amount of, I don't know, bravery, courage, or something crazy like that. How do you do that? How could you do that? I've, I've spoken to people who had contemplated thoughts. One said to me, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to do it. Thank God. Baruch Hashem. Rabbeinu B'chaya doesn't begin that statement by saying, He doesn't say that. He says, he introduces us to a thought process. He says that the very fact that a person would take risks about that which is closest to you, that which you care most about, would make that risk-taking that much worse. What really Rabbeinu B'chaya argues is, is if you take unnecessary risks, you endanger your life, you're, you lose either way. You're, you've committed a sin against Hashem either way. If you die, you're guilty of murder. And it's even worse because you should have cared about yourself. You didn't care about somebody else. That's not nice. You didn't care about yourself. That's terrible. And then later he's going to argue, and if you succeed, meaning you took this unreasonable crazy kind of risk. You recklessly endangered your life. And then God was kind to you and, and he saved you. You also did something very, very wrong. We're going to get to that later. First, he's going to talk about if you don't succeed in, 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 in surviving. If you don't succeed in surviving, you're guilty for what you did. Don't use betachen to justify that. As we explained in great detail in the previous episode already. Now Rabbeinu B'chai goes further. Now he says that Misha Mamis says Atzmai, that the person who goes ahead and does this, this is ye unshegodably suffering, that the person who does it is going to suffer a tremendous consequence. Now, before we go further, I just want to like, I want to, I want to just put on the table what I just did. What, what, I, what I just did is, I said that there is a difference between the objective act 
objectively speaking, and what a person chose to do. And that insofar as sinfulness is concerned, the fact that a person would choose to do something which is more inappropriate makes the sin that much greater. Because of what the person chose, not objectively speaking. Objectively speaking, murder is murder is murder. Whether you killed br- brutally or out of anger or, or out of cruelty, or psychopathically, murder is murder. We don't make distinctions in what was a person feeling or how unfeeling, how cruel was that. Murder is murder. And murder is punished by death. But the fact that a person behaved a certain way and in the person's perception sinned more grievously is necessarily tantamount to a deeper sin. And now, I want to tell you that this is... It's novel. What I'm saying is novel. You know, you you could ask me, do you have a proof? Can you back that up? Did you find it anywhere? So the answer is yes. I did did find it somewhere. It's, It's actually the Rebbe's idea. But let me take you into an interesting, an interesting background to prove this idea before we move on to the next point. The Rambam, Maimonides. In the end of the 18th chapter of the laws of the Jewish High Court, the Ecclesiastical Court, which is really the laws of justice. It's called the laws of Sanhedrin. And in many versions it says, Hilchas Sanhedrin, the laws of the court, the justice system, and the punishments that they are responsible for carrying out. So the Rambam says, and I quote, Gezerat hakatuv hi. It is a scriptural decree. That's a proverbial expression for something which we don't really understand. The scripture, God decrees it. And that is, She'ein memisin bezdin, that the court can never apply a capital punishment, v'loi malkin, and they can't apply corporal punishment. For, to a person, by virtue of their own admission. Your own admission is not considered viable testimony. It's not accepted in the court. Rather, Elo, save, Alpi, Shne'edim, two witnesses. And who can and can't be a witness is a a huge subject in and of itself. The Rambam himself acknowledges that we have two biblical examples of a person admitting that they did a sin and consequences carried out by the court. Yehoshua, the successor of Moshe Rabbeinu, who was described as the king of the Jewish people of the time, he has halacha of being a melech, he killed Ochan. Achan did terrible things and endangered the nation. And Yoshua put him to death by his own admission. David HaMelech, when he wasn't really recognized as the king yet, Shaul was still alive. Although Samuel had already anointed him. We're going to talk about that actually tomorrow. 
on Wednesday, sorry. So David killed this convert. Came from the Amalekite nation. And it seems when you read the scripture that it was by Doris PM. It was by virtue of their own admission. So the Rambam says, you have to know that that's Hira'as Shah. Either that was a unique halacha that applied only at that time. These, these people were prophets. They had some prophetic intuition. They knew something that we don't know and it isn't part of the rubric of law. It's not the rules by which we govern ourselves in the Torah. Or din malchotaya. Or there is a halacha which tells us that a, a real king has the right to carry out a capital punishment without or beyond the laws of the land. We can call that extrajudicial killing. A government, a king, a melech, has the right to do that. If he perceives national security at stake, the king has a right to do that. So maybe that was why, Rabbam says. But that cannot be used to demonstrate that a person's admission is enough to get a conviction and carry out a death sentence. Why not? Ramam says, Sanhedrin can never do that. We don't punish. We don't give corporal punishment. For somebody who is for a person who by his own admission committed a sin. Rambam says, Maybe this person became crazed, deranged, insane. Maybe he's one of these uh, pitiful, sick people. A person not well. Depressed. Who anticipate, want to die. It's very unnatural. The human being wants to survive. Survival instincts as strong as instinct. This person is missing a basic powerful instinct. These are the kind of people, Ram says, who inflict wounds. Taken they, they disembowel themselves. You know, like the Harry Carey stuff. Mashlich agagas. These are the kind of people who jump from roofs or bridges. This person might be suicidal. So he comes and says, I did it! Because he wants to be killed. But that's like so unnatural. That's why we can't accept it. So give the guy an evaluation. See if he's normal or not. And, or if he's suicidal. And if he admits, he admits. Ramam says, generally speaking, this is Xerus Melechi. This is understood to be a decree of the king. Meaning the Torah says it. We don't understand it, the Torah says it. Okay. The Radvaz, Rabbeinu David ben Zimra, wrote one of the foremost commentaries on large portions of the Rambam. He says that this, is, I, this idea is talked about in the Gemara. The Gemara says, and it's found in the Sechet Yevamot, on page 25, Ein adam mesim atzmo rasha. A person cannot self-convict. He doesn't make himself wicked or evil. His own admission doesn't make him into a convicted criminal. Radvaz goes on to speak about whether this applies 
whether what he says, Rambam says, applies only to death or even to corporal punishment. It's a discussion. And then he says, the Rambam wrote, it's not something we understand. It's a decree, what God said. So the Radvaz comments and he says, even though the Rambam says, we don't know the reason, maybe we could give it some kind of rationale. Maybe we could explain it. Why? He says, A person doesn't own his own life. A person doesn't own his own life. It's not your life. It's Kenyan HaKadosh Baruch Your life begins, belongs to God. As Ezekiel states in the 18th chapter of his prophecies. Hanefoshes liheno. Souls are mine, God says. Hilkach, he says, as such, his self-admission doesn't help when it comes to his own physical welfare, like corporal punishment harming his own body or separating body and soul. He says corporal punishment is like a minor act of death. If you continue the corporal punishment, eventually somebody will die. It doesn't work either, he says. It's not yours. But if a person's if it's a person's own residuals, that's who shall I, that's his. So we say, when a person comes along and says, I owe this person money, or I did these damages, we say, he does, baldin, dummy. A person who self-incriminates, that's <laughs> like a hundred witnesses that are bearing testimony. That's what the Vaz says. He says a person cannot self-incriminate about uh, committing a sin, that he committed a sin, for which there is a capital punishment. His soul doesn't belong to him. Having said this, Radvaz says, I, 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 I submit that the Rambam is correct, that there is Gzeris Melech, it is, even if we find an answer, a way to rationalize, in the end of the day, it's Hashem's decree and we have to accept it. So the Rebbe asked a very simple question. A very simple question under Advaz. The Advaz says there's a difference. Your body, your life is not yours. Your money is yours. What's the Rebbe's question? <laughs> the Rebbe's question in a, in a edited sikha found in Lakuta Sichas in the four, uh, 34th volume. On page, where are we? Sorry. The actual uh, the talk begins at page 106. So the Rebbe says, It's uh, something we could look into, you know, the words, his words. How can you make a perspective from a Torah perspective? How can you say that it's not your life, it's God's life, but what possessions are, are mine? He says, what about the idea, Hashem ha'aretz umloya? King David says in the 24th Psalm, to God belongs everything. So the Sefer HaChinuch, very interesting, when he talks about the mitzvah, of the fields of Israel lying fallow. You're not allowed to work the field. Can't plant, can't work the trees, 
And then mitzvah shin chavches, the 328th mitzvah is that we can't even harvest things that grow by themselves. This doesn't mean you can't cut the fruits or vegetables or grain. It's not a sin to cut and eat it. It's a sin to harvest it in the manner of typical farming. He said, He says, you're allowed to eat it. But when you eat it, you can't eat it like a boss. Not like an owner. It's not my field. The field belongs to everybody. The Torah's issue here is, it should be evident, self-evident, from the way a person behaves this whole year long, that ain davar miyuchet b'rishosei. It's not yours. You don't own it. Everything is owned by God. Now, many people say, oh, so that's the reason for Shemitah. No, he says. You want to know the Misharshe, a reason for this mitzvah? Go back to mitzvah 66. And there is a mitzvah about giving a loan to somebody who's poor. Giving a loan. You're going to get the money back. But it's out of play. And why is this a mitzvah? Because Hashem wants us to be kind and compassionate. Wants to be good to others. Why don't we work the fields so that others can benefit from what used to be ours? That's not, that's the reason for the mitzvah. The reason is not to remind us that we don't own it. We don't own it. God owns it. He allows us to behave as an owner for six years. And in the seventh year, he says, now I want you to behave in acknowledgement of the truth that I, me, God, owns everything. So, I mean, it's, it's my life, it's your life. You have the freedom to choose to live your life as you please. But it's not really your life. So you can't take your life, and you can't harm yourself. Okay, the money is mine. It's my, I can decide if I want to buy a, a blue suit or a black suit. That's my choice. You want to eat uh, dairy or f- poultry or fish? That's your choice. You buy whatever you want. You, you have the choice. You can do with your money as you please. You could choose to spend the money you have on more food and less real estate, or you might like more real estate, less food. Okay, that's... But whose money is it? It's God's money. So the Rebbe says, like what is what Vaz saying? From a Torah perspective, this distinction is entirely artificial. In the language of a later scripture, one of the minor prophets, whose name was Chagai, he says, Li ha-kesef, ha-zahav, no-um Hashem. God says, Money? Affluence, residuals, wealth, gold, silver, it's mine. It's all mine, God said. So, if our lives belong to God, doesn't our wealth belong to God too? Everything belongs to God. And yet, Advaz seems to make this distinction between your money and between your life.
So the Rebbe says clearly, that although God owns the whole world, with regard to ownership, there's a hevdel, there's a, a distinction, a hevdel ikri, a fundamental distinction between nafsho and mamono, between your money or your life. So, what's the distinction? The Rebbe says, Yeshleimer Habirazir. Perhaps this is the dis- way to understand it. Nafshe v'chayev shaladam. A person's life, his soul. Nimsru me'akadosh baruchu leha'adam. It's given to the person. Rak betur pekodin. As an object for safekeeping. Valeila Balos wasn't given as an owner. As the Alter Rebbe rules in the Shulchan Aruch, and this is from Chesha Mishpat, the laws of harming oneself, Nizke Guf, the Alter Rebbe says, the syntax is, Ein adam reshus al We have no right to cause ourselves pain, to harm ourselves. We have no right to inflict wounds. Incidentally, this touches on a lot of issues, including elective beauty surgery. It's according to most poskim, it's not permitted. It's certainly a shaila that has to be asked. Can't just cut yourself because I want to cut myself. It's prohibited. So Zesha Adam Hazik is it's not that this is a sin. It's also like an act of misappropriation. You have no right. So I, I, have, I have the right, but I, could choo- I, sh- I should choose not to. It's sinful. No, you don't have the right. It's like taking somebody else's property without permission. It's called theft. You don't have ownership over your body. One's body is it's God's. God only gave it to you to take care of. But a person's money is a person is the owner of the money. He is the owner. That's why if you take what belongs to me, you committed an act of theft. And the fact that a person is not permitted to squander money, to waste residuals, that's a prohibition. It's an isser. It's not because I'm stealing. It's my money. I could just destroy things. We have a prohibition in the Torah. Baal Tashka, don't waste. Wasteful behavior is sinful. People could argue, and possibly correctly, that recycling is a Torah idea because we shouldn't be wasteful. Not because it doesn't belong to us. Just because it belongs to you doesn't mean it's appropriate. But there's a big distinction, belonging or not. The Rebbe goes on, brilliantly illustrates how this is not a contradiction to the idea of God owning things. Because at the end of the day, God, who owns it, gave you ownership. He gave you ownership, and he's always able, he's allowed to take it back whenever he wants to. And there brings a, a beautiful illustration of the real estate called Canaan, that was given by God 
to certain tribes for a period of time, then taken by God and given to the Jewish people for posterity. So your ownership hails from or stems from God's ownership. That's what makes theft a sin against God, not just a sin against another person. Because God is the one who ordains the concept of ownership from which comes the concept of theft. If you have no ownership, you can't have theft. Robin Hood, by the way, is not a hero in our vernacular. He's a thief. Because even a thief who steals with the loftiest of intentions is still stealing. Then the Rebbe does this brilliant illustration of how we can see this basis in halacha, how it, this plays itself out in the laws of blessings, which I'm not going to delve into now. It's, it's actually beyond the purview. But then the Rebbe comes back on page 109, and he says, okay, we've made a distinction. We've illustrated the legal basis for this distinction. But what's the reason? Why indeed did God do it that way? Why did he give us ownership of money and not ownership of our body? Why is it that when it comes to our body, it's called safekeeping? When it comes to money, it's called ownership. If all of it is God's, why did God give some things to us as, as ownership and other things to us only as custodianship? So the Rebbe says an amazing thing. From God's vantage point, meaning objectively speaking. There is no difference between a person's life, between a person's body, between a person's residuals. They're all the same. They're all gods. Objectively speaking, it's all gods. Everything is God. Equally. Equally. Aval. There's a difference for us. Not objectively speaking from God's vantage point, but from our subjective viewpoint. There is a distinction. With regard to our life, we feel that our life isn't really ours. We're constantly, so to speak, giving it back to God so that we can be refreshed, wake up and keep living. And every morning we make this bracha. We say, And the, uh, the idea of this contractual agreement between us and God has everything to do with our soul. It's the spirit that makes the body into something meaningful, that makes it life, or that it was the repository of life when it's human remains afterwards. So as such, in our own view, we can see we can see, we can sense the continued holiness, the godly element of life. To say that life is godly shouldn't be hard for people to understand. It's the way we see it. It's what you call self-evident. It's not self-evident that our possessions aren't really our possessions. And when it comes to ownership, we feel we feel that this belongs to us. And it's not self-evident that everything is God. I worked hard, it's my money. In other words, the Rebbe says that there are really 
in Torah itself, in our responsibility towards Hashem, there's a distinction between objective truisms and then the subjective ways we naturally were created to perceive things. So much so that it actually, in a Torah sense, has a difference in halacha. I found this idea very powerful. And it, it got me thinking, and this is how I came to the conclusion that Rabbeinu Bachaya is not speaking objectively about punishment. He doesn't say he gets a bigger punishment. He says it's more suitable. He says the idea of perception, the very self-perception that we care about our own lives more makes that act of murder on some level more grievous. This is not an absolute statement, by the way. I, I don't think anybody is going to say a person who commits suicide is more cruel than somebody who killed a baby. No. <laughs> the person who, who, who killed the, the baby is a monster. And there are tragically nice people who committed suicide. There are also bad people who committed suicide. I don't think it's a cruelty thing. There is an element of that risk-taking that is so unnatural that it becomes more sinful as such because it's so unnatural. Risk somebody else's life is not so unnatural. Risk your own life is very unnatural. And that makes it on some level more grievous, more sinful against Hashem. And, I mean, this is, this is, the, this is my, my proof of, of why, why I'm so sure. It doesn't, it doesn't mean it's more a greater sin in and of itself. You know, the, the, the Rambam, when he talks about the act of murder, he says in the beginning of the second chapter of the laws of murder and preservation of life, he says, A person who kills by his own hand, he says, if you killed, whether it was by virtue of a knife, of, 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 of an implement, of a slingshot, a rock. Yes, a rock is a weapon, like a bullet. Or you choked somebody, cut off their airwaves, you burned them, whatever it is. You killed them, you killed them. And I said, this person gets killed in the court of Jewish law. What about somebody who hires a hitman to kill somebody else? Or he sends somebody in his employment or he throws him to the dogs, ties him up and throws him to the lions. So Rambam says, all of these things, and also the person who commits suicide, this person is considered to be a bloodletter, a murderer, but it doesn't use the word killer. The sin of killing is in hand. He says, you, From heaven, you, you're, you're guilty of, of death. But the court can't carry it out. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Why does he say, The person who committed suicide, the court can't kill him? You don't say. He's dead already. What does it even mean? He's Chayav Misa Lashamayim. He's Chayav Misa, that God's going to end his life. His life is over already. But very interestingly, the Rambam calls a hoireg is a murderer, 
And here, when it comes to suicide, the Rambam says, he's shoifich damim. He's a blood, he spills blood. Avoin hariga biyade, the act of murder is in hand. It doesn't call him an outright murderer. He doesn't. It's like perplexing. It's not so simple. How do we know this? It's all derived from the same verse. Rambam says, A person who spills the blood of another human, his own blood should be spilled. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God talking to Noah. That's a person who actually kills not by an agent. I will demand your blood from your soul. And here the Rambam is quoting the way Rabbi Lazar interprets this verse in, the, in, in Tracted Bavakama. In Tracted Bavakama on page 91, it says, From your soul, I will demand your blood. So it's learned from the same verse. And the Rambam juxtaposes them. And then he says, From the hand of an animal, an animal is culpable. The animal just does what an animal does. No, it means the one who put his friend in that compromising situation. This is the person who hires somebody else. And it says by these three, Hashem says, I'm going to follow up. I'm going to demand payment. So, unless you want to say that Bechaya has a huge disagreement with the Rambam about this, and, 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 and he says he's a murderer. And the Rambam says, he doesn't say he's not a murderer. He doesn't use the word hoirig. He says, hoirig atzmai, shoifich damim. He's a bloodletter. Avain hariga beyodai. He has in his hand murder. Sounds on a legal footing like somebody who hires a hitman. I'm not trying to make any light of suicide. Not, uh, this is... This is um, you know, the most, certainly one of the most severe sins. There's not a question about it. You know, the, in the Shulchan HaMelech commentary, he brings down that Hoyrigis uh, Atzmai, and I'm quoting, Kosov HaKadmoinim, the Kadmoinim, the earliest of our sages wrote, HaMa'abed Atzmai Ladas, a person who commits suicide, Ein Lochelek Laolam Haba. He has no portion in the world to come. Doesn't say that about a murder. On the contrary, it says that his death atones for what he did. He has no portion in the world to come. It's terrible, terrible. It's a very bad sin. No question about that. And yet, in the Shulchan HaMelech commentary, in the laws of Evil, we have this, the Raman tells us, this is straight up Shulchan Aruch, that a person who commits suicide, that a person like that, it's found in uh, Yeridea, in chapter 345, that the person who commits suicide doesn't get a proper respect, so to speak. You don't, you don't sit shiva. And you don't eulogize him. But it says the family, the family could still accept some condolences. Why? Because it's covid l'chaim. Why are you punishing the living for? You don't, you don't give honor to the person who killed himself. But his family is nebuch. The family is... They, 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 they have their needs. They're, they are bereaved. Just because their relative is an evil person or did an evil thing doesn't mean the family isn't bereaved. So in the, the, in the Shulchan HaMalach commentary by Evan Yisrael, he, he, he says like this, he says, and I'm quoting, 
In today's day and age, it is most common that Shiva is sat. In the later, more recent scholars of the last few centuries have given various reasons for this. Amongst them, maybe somebody else pulled the trigger. We don't have witnesses, we don't know. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe this person regretted it, but it was too late. But he still had time to regret it before and did tshuva. And therefore, it's not ma'abadatz Maybe he was severely mentally ill and didn't know what he was doing, didn't understand what he was doing properly. Would you give the same leniencies to a murderer? Say, well, maybe he didn't know what he was doing. Like, to get off murder with the insanity plea is very, very difficult. It's very difficult. Here, this guy is like, gets let off very easily. It's like a remote. Maybe he didn't have his wits together pretty clear that we don't, we can't say suicide, the, the one who commits suicide is m- m- worse than the act of murder. You can't, you can't say that. It's, it's, there's, there's, I don't want to call it contradiction, but there, there, are, there are conflicting messages here. One thing is clear for our purposes, for Rabbeinu Bechaya's purposes, he's illustrating that there is an element of greater rebellion because it is even more unnatural. So the easier it is for a person to sin, or the more natural it is, the less egregious it is, perhaps. But the more unnatural it is, the more egregious it is. He says, you use betochen to take risks? That's unacceptable. And now he drives home his point. V'cheni says, Mi says, This is a greater sin. Anshe Gadol doesn't mean he's going to be, it's a greater, a greater punishment than the act of murder. Gadol Blisafik, greater without any doubt. Greater without any doubt than what? The person who commits suicide is undoubtedly going to suffer a greater punishment in the world to come. So I'm going to make a suggestion to you that what he means to say is greater than other sins. Um, I see, Richard, you're asking questions about, about Esav and uh, what Esav did know or didn't know. And, and the, the truth is that these are good questions, but it, it doesn't, the, the class is not about Esav. That's, a, that's a, a different day. We have to deal with Esav and, and Esav's sin and what he did know or didn't know and so on and so forth. What we can glean from Amos is, what we can glean that, 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 that annulling mercy is sinful in Hashem's eyes. That's, that's what we can glean. And that's what Rabbeinu B'chai emphasizes here. And now he says... Why? Why, do, why are we so sure that suicide is going is to exact a devastating consequence, a much greater punishment than the next world? So he says, We have a mushal. have a mushal. What's the mushal? He says, The mushal over here is, is uh, the metaphor. Like the Nether Bakadish points out, this is a metaphor. It's a, it's a metaphorical, this is going to be a metaphor to illustrate the point. What's the metaphor? A servant to get a command. His, his master said, I want you to watch this place for a certain amount of time. He warned him, don't you dare leave. Don't leave. Until I send a messenger to you, don't leave. You have to be here. He expected the messenger to come and the messenger didn't show up. So you know what? He said, I'm, I'm checking out. I'm out of here. Before he came. And his master flared wrath against him. The Hanisha gave him a devastating, terrible punishment. 
So the commentaries tell us over here that the reason that we're having this metaphor, according to the Marpil and Nefesh, like I, I, I could forgive myself, it's my life. No, it's not your life. Hashem gave you a mission. It's not yours to choose in or out. It's not your choice. Hashem gave you a mission. You have to fill the mission. So, so what's the, what's, like, what, what, is the, what is the upshot here? What's the point of this, this, this metaphor? Like a metaphor is supposed to convey something that you wouldn't know without the metaphor. Well, it's a metaphor. A metaphor of what? That a person didn't listen. Any sin, he didn't listen. God said, put on film. God told, the, the master told the servant, I want you to do A, B, and C, and he didn't do it. I want you to eat kosher. I, I, I went to eat pork today. God said, observe the Shabbat. I, I should have, I could have, I would have, I didn't. Like, what does the, what the, the metaphor do for us? What's the difference between this metaphor or any other metaphor? Oh, I mean, for that matter, what is this metaphor? How does this illustrate a greater punishment? I, I mean, the more I read this, this doesn't even make any sense to me. It's a much greater punishment. Belief suffolk, without any question whatsoever, and, and, here's the metaphor. <laughs> what is the metaphor? So I think the metaphor is this. In every other situation, a person who violates the will of Hashem, it's a, it's a temporary violation. You did something wrong now. It's not a permanent disaster, so to speak. It's not, we can call it abandonment of the mission. We can say it's a dereliction of duty. You, you were supposed to do A, you didn't do. Here, the master said, go there, don't leave. Don't leave. Don't leave isn't just a detail of what you were supposed to do. Stay put. The person said, I don't want to live. The world has abandoned me, everybody hates me, I see no value to my life. The master told you to stay. But I have a lot of pain. The master told you, stay put. What am I accomplishing? I'm doing nothing. The master told you to stay put. Who is the shliach? The shliach is the malach us. The angel of death is the shliach. So the person who places himself, so to speak, in mortal danger is essentially abrogating his commitment to Hashem to stay put. So the person who actually committed suicide literally checked out. The person who puts himself in mortal danger is abandoning his post unless Hashem chooses to save him. So therefore, it's like committing suicide. You don't have the right to abandon your post. This is not a sin like any other. And I think that Rabbeinu B'chaya emphasizes on Shegadobli Suffolk, it is the greatest of sins. Because in no other sin did somebody actively abandon the post or position that God gave them for posterity. You can't come back. Nobody ever comes back. So in illustrating graphically how severe a sin it is, Rabbeinu B'chaya is trying to say to us, don't take 
unnecessary risks. Don't put yourself in danger. Because in essence, it's an abandonment of the position in which God placed you. And there's so much more to say, but I've taken much more of your time than I meant to. I'm only going to just conclude by saying this. As the, as the, as the, as the Kihat edition points out, that the Bamid Barabba, the Medrash says, that God never makes impossible demands. And as the Rebbe explains it in Lakot HaSichas, volume 13, and the Sicha on page 39, on the page 40, when he talks about what was the sin what was the sin of the Miraglim, the scouts, the spies who refused to go to the land of Israel? God gave them a mission. God gave them a mission. And they said, it can't be done. God's expectation is unreasonable. So we're not doing it. That's a basic denial of faith. That's denying that God knows what he's doing. If God would have given me this position and made it impossible, then God has created an impossible situation. Okay, then I have to check out. It's impossible. But God says clearly He never gives us an impossible situation. So if He gave you that situation, He necessarily has to give you the ability to maintain the situation. And it isn't over until he says it's over. More about this in a fascinating, inspirational lesson that's gleaned from the story of Shmuel Hanavi, when he sent on a mission of anointment, Be'ezrat Hashem, in the next episode. Thank you so much for joining. I'm sorry it took me so long to clarify and share all this with you. I hope you found it uplifting, inspirational, informative. And, uh, you know, if you did, please, I'd appreciate it if you could like, share, and let's keep trying to spread the word and get more people to subscribe to youtube.com forward slash Shoei Mendel Kaplan. The more we study Torah, the more we share ideas of Torah, the better a place our world and the closer Mashiach comes. Thank you for your efforts. Thank you for your assistance. Thank you for joining. Have an amazing, beautiful, wonderful day. I hope to meet soon with the coming of Mashiach. Amen.